everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. My name is Sarah Longwell. I'm the publisher of The Bulwark, and I am here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, who is affiliated with Lawfare, which is something I don't usually do. I don't usually name our affiliations, but I just did. And today, we are putting our fingers in the foie gras and talking about episodes 9 and 10 of a French Village podcast. Yeah, so uh, I just want to say... If you have to be a communist trapped in a basement in occupied France in 1941 or two, it's not clear to me what year it is right now, at least it should be a basement with a great wine cellar, uh, with a great wine collection, a radio, and some foie gras. Uh, this is the second person I've watched put their fingers in that same bowl of foie gras. I find it <laughs> very disgusting. Uh, I don't eat a lot of foie gras, um, cause at some point someone told me how it was made. Yeah. And... I, I have very few ethical restraints on my consumption of food. Uh, I don't eat veal and I don't eat foie gras. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have like a... I'm not going to like it, but I just, it's not a thing. I, I, they treat it on the show like it is the greatest thing any human has ever tasted. Uh, and I sort of just, I I find that sort of surprising. No, but it is wonderful tasting. I mean, I, 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 I do have an ethical anxiety about it, but I, it, it does taste wonderful. Uh. Well, I guess if you're, I mean, if you're here, I just, when you're starving in a basement here, this is my thing. Okay. And I have this, in these two episodes, uh, I spend much of my time angry in these two episodes because people keep making such stupid decisions, little decisions, but for a show that is about historical precision, and I think is very precise in many ways, there are a bunch of like extraordinarily questionable decisions that get made as plot drivers. Uh, that were making me bananas. And I'll just say, on the foie gras front, small thing, but if you're in a basement and somebody has paid thousands of dollars for this bowl of foie gras that is sitting there, and you just, like, dig your fingers into it, you need to smooth that stuff back over, that you have left evidence <laughs> of your fingers in the foie gras. I just well, think it was, like, such a weird decision by Marcel. I just want to say this is uh, my favorite ethical commentary by Sarah Longwell ever. She's not saying don't steal the foie gras that cost 5,000 francs. She's not saying uh, don't eat with your finger, don't eat the foie gras with your fingers. She's saying cover it up. Saying leave no trace. <laughs> yeah. You are in yeah. hiding. Listen, I have so many feelings about uh, the Marcel like and I'll just, we'll just jump into this particular storyline, but can I just say, Suzanne springs him. His picture's everywhere. They've let us know that. He is being manhunted by Mueller. We know that, Mueller. Uh, and what does she do? She just comes in broad daylight and, like, lets him out. He's leaving his finger tracks in the foie gras. She's springing him during broad daylight. And then he, like, shaves his mustache as though this is the biggest, uh, you know, he's unrecognizable now without his mustache. Uh, and so I just uh, felt like they would be better at this than that, is my feeling. Well, they aren't pros, you know, and I do think there was a kind of, 
you know, in any of these situations, right, there is a kind of competence Darwinism that takes place over time, right? The, the, <laughs> if you are, let's, let's take the, his comrade, the young baby-faced Ivan character, um, and who gets himself caught, uh, and quite nobly refused to, refuses to talk. Uh, he is dead by the end of the first episode we watched this week. Um, and, um, you know, the better you are at this, the longer you last. And um, Suzanne and Marcel are, are pretty good at some aspects of it and pretty bad at other aspects of it. And one thing, by the way, that you don't do if you're uh, trying to maintain operational security is go visit your sick kid. You know, well, I mean, then this is this is the other part that I have lots of feelings about. It's sort of like when you're watching. The only thing I can always think of is Romeo and Juliet, where you watch a series of decisions get made and unfold that you know are leading to disaster, but you're like watching. Daniel Larcher saying to Hortense, hey, why don't you just go upstairs and see Gustav? Uh, and you're like, why? Yeah. Why should she go see Gustav? Real, really bad life choice. On That's the first time Danielle Larcher does something that you're like, you're an idiot. Your, your wife is sleeping with, a, let's just start with his name, Heinrich Müller, who is the, you know, SD chieftain in your region you know she's sharing a hotel room with him she comes by to visit your nephew is upstairs sick and you know that his brother is coming who Müller is after tonight why do you put her in a room with the kid it makes no sense it's it's it is so annoying it, it's annoying because it's like a plot device and not a thing that you know, you know Daniel's smarter than that. Uh, and so I found it uh, aggravating. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, because also, like, who Hort Hortense doesn't care about Gustav and Daniel doesn't care. Like, she's she's shacking up with the, the SD guy. She's barely coming by to even see Tequiero, who, you know, appears in this episode. Uh, you know, he's used to sparingly. Who is becoming <laughs> a very cute, uh, very cute toddler. Yes. Very cute. Um, and then, so speaking of, of kids, I'll tell you something though. So I'm not too negative about these episodes. One of the things that I like about the show in general, um, and about, the way that it treats Gustav in particular is that Gustav is not a plot device. Gustav is a legitimate character and the show gives uh, real consideration to the interior lives of these children, right? And and they are uh, people who ultimately both pass information in their sort of the way that they the, the way that they're interpreting the information from the grownups in their lives and they sort of transfer that to one another um, but but more importantly, this idea of and, and uh, like Daniel tells Gustav that his father is in Switzerland, uh, and so the, the Gustav says, "Well, then I'm going to Switzerland," and uh, and and he and uh, the Cremieux daughter decide to hop on a bus 
uh, and head to Switzerland in what I think is an actually kind of, um, I don't know, like a, like a thing, a way kids would behave, right? Like he figures out where some money is, gets his hands on it, has no idea, has no concept of Switzerland as like a, how am I going to find my dad in an entire country? <laughs> and also it's not that far away. Right. I mean, it, it's like saying, you know, distance wise, if you live in New York, hey, can we make it to Pennsylvania or, you know, can we make it to to southern New Jersey? Yeah. Which you can from New York. Uh, but using only public transportation, using only public transportation. Uh, however, they are discovered uh, on the bus, uh, which I guess by, there's like what a checkpoint, a stop. Yeah, well, there's a checkpoint because people are looking for Mar his dad, right, right. who, you know, just did sh shoot some Nazi officers. That's right. Uh, and so they lie and uh, and take off running uh, from the German soldiers into the woods uh, where they, they, I don't know, they like, they go in, the, he goes in the creek. He's trying to cross the creek. I like this is it was a, this, it's, this gets to an annoyance of mine. Oh, go ahead. So, you know, there is a myth that getting cold gets you sick. <laughs> I had and, the same thought. And getting cold does not make you sick. It's not true. It shows up in a gazillion uh uh shows and books. Uh, that, you know, if you fall into a stream, you're going to get cold and then you're going to catch cold. And that's what happens to Gustav. And actually, no, the risk is if you fall into a stream, you're going to get wet and then you're going to get hypothermia because it's cold. That's the risk. It's not that you're going to get pneumonia, which is what happens. And for a show that gets so many things right, not to bother with medical details as... Uh, <laughs> you know, as well as they do military and historical details. It's just a little bit annoying. Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of these moments in these two episodes, and I don't know why. It might have been the mood that I'm in, uh, or I was just, like, picking nits. But, like, here's another one that will lead us to another plot point. So, uh, the, you know, the manhunt is going on for Marcel and Yvonne. And, uh, and, and the, the, the episode, uh, nine, the first one we're watching begins with the stakeout and they've found Yvonne cause they've been doing this. They've been following, um, the communists and the communist leader basically leads them to Yvonne. And so now they're on to him. They pick him up and they bring him back to Mueller's office where he's doing the old, uh, well, actually, there's actually there's there's actually a pretty good sequence where actually the French pick him up first. The French police. It's Marchetti who's doing the stakeout, and there's that tension. I and I always enjoy this part where there's this tension between the French cops and the Germans, and it really is kind of like a jurisdictional who gets the credit for finding people and getting the information and it's this is just like a tale as old as time i guess the fighting over who gets the credit for the thing and so marchetti doesn't want to give him up marchetti wants to be the one to do it and so you can see marchetti thinking about doing the cigarette torture technique uh and then uh muller shows up and uh like just as this is sort of happening hits marchetti for not turning over uh yvonne faster uh, and being bad at collaborating. 
uh, and then takes him to his office where he proceeds to torture him in the fanciest, nicest chair in which the other guests all sit when they're in his office. I don't know why this bothers me so much, but he has, Mueller has these like ornate chairs in his office that are like clearly like hand, you know, whatever. They're, they're nice chairs. And he's just like got this guy, you know, with his shirt half off and he's burning him with cigarettes uh, and then like sticking his finger in his wounds to torture him and there's blood and he's doing it on these very pretty chairs just in his normal office where he like sits and has tea and i don't buy that i feel like there's got there would be a special torture room where they would do this stuff so that blood wasn't getting on nice chairs don't you think i think that's probably right um i i do think the lack of set changes between uh um, and the fact that, you know, Hortense keeps kind of walking in on torture sessions, uh, if for that, if not for that reason alone, they probably would have different locations for the torture than for uh, entertaining. Um, there is, though, on the jurisdictional point that you raise, a really interesting uh, historical point, um, which is that this this jurisdictional Tension was a creature of a very important policy to Vichy that actually had implications for uh, the Holocaust in France as well. So Vichy's probably one of their most important uh, um, objectives in collaboration was to preserve French sovereignty, in fact, where they could, and in appearance, where they couldn't do it, in fact. And so it was really important to them that police functions be conducted by French people operating under the French rule. Penal code or... Penal code or whatever, rather than Germans operating under occupation authority. And the result of this is that they very energetically went after communists um, at the Germans' behest because it was very important to them uh, to that they had the authority to do it, even if they were basically being lackeys of the Germans. It was very important to them that they did things themselves. And this had real implications in the... Um, in the uh, um, uh, hostage situation where they actually ended up doing a bunch of the arrests and a bunch of, you know, sometimes even the executions themselves were kind of done by Vichy. Um, but it had real implications in the roundup of Jews because uh, unlike, you know, for example, Poland, where the Nazis just did it themselves, in the case of uh, roundup of Jews in France, a lot of it was done by French officials. And this was done by people who, like Marchetti, you know, it was important to them that they, that this was an act of the French state, not an act of the German occupying authority, because that would somehow preserve French sovereignty. And of course, what it did is it made French uh, policy just a creature of German in, in, the, in that case, exterminationism. But there's literally 
in this period um, in other parts of France, large numbers of people are being rounded up by exactly this jurisdictional point that, you know, hey, if we let you, the, the SD, do it, it's going to be a, you know, then we lose sovereignty. If we just do it for you, we can pretend that the French state is real. Yeah. Uh, and you can see how that um, is much, how that, the lasting implications then, right? Because it's not like then all the French were in it together under the occupied German forces, right? It it splits the elite, like you, you now, when, as we know, historically, not from the show, but when ultimately the occupation ends, now there are a bunch of people who are going to be left behind who remember who was working at the behest of the Germans to yes, and you, French and you, people. And you see this very vividly in the relationship between Marchetti and De Caverne, where De Caverne, who is originally Marchetti's boss, is kind of on the outs professionally because he's, there's just stuff he won't do. So he gets left this lemon of an investigation of the death of Caverny, whereas uh, Marchetti, who's eager to do the political stuff and actually seems to be a fierce anti-communist who really wants to participate in what he calls uh, national investigations, right, is on the up professionally and gets, you know, gets uh, a job in the national police as the sort of regional guy for Villeneuve. Yeah, big promotion for Marchetti, uh, which helps him in his, uh, is it detente? What would his, 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 um, his simmering feud with, with Mueller, uh, which is basically rooted both in the jurisdictional competition, but also in the Hortense uh, competition. And so Marchetti is eager to put his finger in Mueller's eye, plus Mueller keeps, like, hitting him. Um, and so there's that. Uh, and so that's, there's this moment, and it's one of those things where you're like, I don't really know, who, you're both really awful, So I, but I'm sort of nominally on Marchetti's side. Oh, man, when yes. He, when he dives out uh, Mueller to uh, Colwitz and says, uh, he let... Marcel Larcher go he had him in his sights but remember there was some pillow talk where Mueller decides he's gonna follow uh he's gonna follow Marcel uh not not uh to to get all the communists and instead what ends up happening is Marcel shoots the soldier uh or the the um not the soldier but the what is it like the officer the German officers and now it's on Mueller doesn't want anybody to find out that he kind of had this guy and hadn't brought him in. Um, but Marchetti knows it. And Marchetti just in Colwitz's office drops a dime on him. Yeah. So this is, first of all, important to make. We're making moral distinctions all over the place. Let's make an important moral distinction here. Marchetti is a bad guy. In He's a corrupt official. Um, he is uh, a, a, a kind of Vichy careerist true believer. He is willing to torture people. He is 
uh, willing to abuse his authority. Uh, and of course, he's willing to help get people killed for his career ambitions. That doesn't even rate on the evil scale next to the SS guys. Um, you know, Merchetti is high on the on the what you call the complicity scale, right? But Miller is what he is complicit with. Yeah, M Miller is like one of the worst people in the history of the world. Like if you if you say like like who are the worst people in the world? Relatively senior SS officers dispatched to um to foreign countries when the Nazis invaded them for political crimes enforcement. These are really really bad people. Um and because Müller is a character who's a little bit more complicated than his evil. Um, you know, we, we, we see him in sentimental moments and stuff. He's a little bit, it's a little bit easy to forget that, but this is like one of the worst people in the world right now. And, um, and the only people who are worse are the people higher than him on the totem pole that he's in fact on. Right. Uh, Merchetti is a pretty ordinary corrupt official. Um, and Marchetti, in this case, has something on him, um, which he's been storing up both because of Hortense and because, as you say, uh, Miller keeps punching him and <laughs> also keeps, um, has something on him, which he's dangled, you know, he's had leverage over him since the early episodes of the show. So... You know, in this case, and, and we think because of Mueller's inability to, at the end of the episode 10, to recover um, uh, Marcel Larcher, we think Marchetti wins not just this round, but unless something changes, uh, Mueller is off to Kiev. To Minsk. Is, to Minsk, sorry. The, the Eastern Front, which is not where any Nazi wanted to be in 1942. So things are looking pretty bad for Miller. I can only hope he dies in Stalingrad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there is, um, there's the moment when he gets his notification then, uh, that he's, he's got to go. Uh, and it, it, there's, there's hope for a bit, uh, which is of course dashed, uh, at the, well, it's not dashed actually. It there's a, it, there's a moment where it could have been dashed uh in the second episode uh because Hortense who also one of the worst people on the planet. Okay? She is so awful. To She's... our to our Twitter follower who tweeted at Sarah and me, OMG, I didn't think I could hate Hortense more or something like that. I am so with you. She is getting She's really winning the battle with uh, with uh, 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 Mrs. Schwartz for the worst uh, the worst woman in the in in the show. Yes, she's very terrible, and she does go see her her nephew, who of course immediately and very sweetly says that because Daniel does a weird thing that I because I this is just another questionable parenting choice for Daniel. Granted, he's his uncle, but it's like don't tell the kid his dad's coming. 
especially if it's like contingent on his health condition, which this kid can't control. Like, I get it. You're trying to get him to go to sleep, but you're like, well, if your fever comes down, your dad will come visit. Seems both uh, unfair to the kid and also like, what if his dad doesn't come? Like, this is not something that anybody, I just, look, I do not promise my kids anything unless I am 100% certain I can deliver it because otherwise they're going to ask you a billion times about the thing. So anyway, uh, thought that was questionable. But anyway, Hortense, who seems to at least grapple slightly with the decision. Um, but she, you're right about this when you say sentimental moments. I don't know. There's this, the moment where he's listening to this, this song from his youth and he and Hortense are looking at each other tearfully because he's got to go to Minsk. Um, and they just, they just can't believe how awful it is and how sorry they feel for themselves because they're losing this great love between two evil people. Um, it's like too much to take that I don't find I didn't find it sentimental at all. I found it two horrible people who feel sorry for themselves, uh, just who are the worst together and apart. Um, and we later see Hortense crying on the bed. She's so sad. She knows about Marcel and she decides she's going to tell Mueller so that he doesn't have to go to Minsk. And it's yeah. all about her. I think we have look, we have all had moments where we have thought. Maybe if our in-laws were just dead, um, things would be better. And um, that is... I have not had that thought. I uh, think my father-in-law listens to this podcast. Definitely never had that thought. Actually, neither have I. But um, uh, uh, I I like my in-laws very much. My brother-in-law is an excellent soul. Um, Both of my brothers-in-law. But I think the, the, the thought, is, let's just say, is not uncommon. But... If you happen to be sleeping with the Nazi police chief uh, in your area, and when you have that thought, um, you're saying, well, if only Danielle were uh, dead and tortured by my boyfriend, I could keep having an affair with him. I think if you've ever had that thought, you go into the realm of you are a horrible person horrible uh horrible so so um and i i i guess we can just do the whole thing i do want to get to to lucienne here but uh you know so so here's what so for for the people who just listen to the podcast and don't watch the show i'll give you the quick rundown on the plot uh so muller and his goons uh show up uh, Marcel has has come to the house. You know, they the the house had been being watched, but the the guards take off at curfew. Sarah, who is it, Daniel, has brought in to the circle of trust, flicks the light a couple times to let Marcel know that it is safe to come in. He comes in. There's a wonderful scene where he sits with his son Gustav and kisses him, and his fever's coming down, and he's got that sweaty, angelic look of a child and. Uh, you know, Marcel is f- freshly shaven without his mustache and his awesome disguise of glasses and, Captain and no Captain Carrot is sitting there in his cage in the in the side of the screen. That's right. And and Marcel uh, reads him this story about uh, the gold and where the source of gold is. And you know where it is, Ben Wittes? It's in your heart. It's in your heart. It's in your heart, man. And so there's this, so there's this nice thing. And then... The Germans show up, and it's clear Hortense has dropped the dime on her brother-in-law, uh, as well as her husband, 
for harboring him as well as her sick nephew and um daniel thinking fast uh and again putting himself on the line can they do it? this and this actually this is a slightly better disguise operation i guess uh for what we're dealing with um but they switch coats and hats and Danielle does a pretty convincing, no, <laughs> you're giving it the thumbs down. I hate this scene. <laughs> Finish your thought and then I'll tell you why this scene pissed me off. So he puts on the leather coat and the whatever kind of cap uh, the communists wear, um, that like page boy hat, and walks out with his head down and uh, all of the Germans go around him and conceivably Marcel has gone out the back door through the hole in the neighbor's hedge through the greenhouse out to the main street which the instructions Daniel gave him uh, at which point Muller just starts you know beating Daniel up uh, but go ahead you hate this scene why okay this scene strikes me as the paradigmatic case of something done for plot device reasons that makes no sense in real life so the goal of the disguise is to buy time for Marcel to escape. And in fact, buys no time. The, he walks out the front door. It takes as, you know, a, it buys as much time as he gets to walk out the front door. They immediately discover he's not Marcel. Um, it would have taken the same amount of time for them to walk from the street to the front door. All he had to do was sit at home send Marcel out if they if by the way if they hadn't switched spent time switching coats uh, Marcel would have had more time they didn't have to talk about it Marcel get out the back by the time the Germans come to the front he's gone uh, and then Danielle could have said no my brother's not here he, he hasn't been here um, and he doesn't have to get the crap beaten out of him by Muller who uh, may know he's lying, but wouldn't be able to, he doesn't find him in a, his brother disguise. This struck me as, as very silly. It was like, Marcel, get, go out the back quick before the Germans show up. Okay, can I just, all right, so I'm not sure about this. You're, you're making a good point, a compelling case here. But I thought that the reason that he had to go out is that the Germans were like surrounding the house. And by going out front, he was drawing everybody back around right so like because this is the biggest thing that i thought during the scene was like do they not have walkie-talkies yet like from a timeline because it feels like they need walkie-talkies because basically what happens when they're doing these stakeouts is they're always like go around the back you know and so you see that happen where it looks like part of the germans have gone around the back and what 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 daniel does when he walks out is he draws all the cars like come surround him in the front i'm sorry it if that's the explanation, it makes no sense either, because if you have a bunch of people around the back and then you walk out the front, uh, they don't there's a big manor house in the way, um, you know, and by the way, the point of having people on the back is to avoid precisely the situation where something happens in the front that distracts everybody and the guy goes out the back. So I, I think the one way or another, it's elevating the drama over anything that makes sense. And it's like pretty minor by American standards. I mean, nothing goes, the idea of having a distraction isn't, you know, oh, let's have a bomb go off and, you know, and then you'll slip out the back or, you know, a helicopter crash or something. It's pretty minor, but I did think it was quite silly. Uh, 
Okay, well, uh, you, that's a compelling... I'm just... I, again, this, I, this is my feeling the whole way through these two episodes. That part bothered me less than some of the other things, but I, I will grant you uh, that it felt... The, sl- the storytelling was slightly sloppy, I thought, uh, in these couple of episodes. Uh, and just to wrap up that last scene, which happens right at the end of the of our episode 10, uh, Muller, very upset that Marcel seems to have gotten away. Hey, this is get, getting unfair to Bob Muller here. I'm, I keep uh, saying it wrong. Mueller, yeah, I mean, I, I don't generally mind um, ba- uh, defending pronunciations here, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, you know, this given is, this both is, of our no, uh, I know. frequent commentary about Bob Mueller, I think we should be careful with Mueller. M- fine. Mueller. Mueller. Like Bueller. Uh, Mueller. It's got Mueller. an umlaut. Yeah. My German pronunciation is worse than my French pronunciation, but <laughs> it's, he's not a Mueller. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, the problem is, is that's how I, like the name that I see is how I, it's how I pr- have pronounced it, which I did talk a lot about uh, the good Mueller. This is the bad Mueller. Anyway, uh, bad Mueller at the end of this scene looks up and in the window sees Sarah. Uh, and you do really do not want to be the Jewish girl in the house of the communist uh, where the communist was hiding, catching the eye of the evil Nazi. With any luck, he's going to get shipped to Minsk tomorrow. But I have this feeling that the show's invested a little too much in him to uh, make him disappear quite that breezily. Yeah, that's a it's a bad it portends something not great for Sarah. Um, Hate to see that because she's a she's a great character. Um, But we'll see. So let's just tip back into uh, another. So so we we hit the fact. So Lucien and Berrio are like not in the they're not in episode nine at all. It just totally skips them. Um, And they really don't come back in until uh, episode 10. Uh, but the, and, and Schwartz is also in it. Not very much. Uh, Marie's also not in it at all. Um, it's very much, f- you know, focused on the communists and, uh, and kind of that circle of Marchetti, Mueller, Hortense, um, and Dr. Larche. Uh, but the one thing that they are kind of setting up with Schwartz is that Decaverne has been given this, as you note, kind of bomb assignment of figuring out who killed this gay guy, Caberni, that no one, no one misses that much except for his, uh, his, his lover, uh, who's a bad guy. Uh, both of the, both of the bad guys, guys, uh, he's, um, he's Servier's nephew, the one that keeps getting in trouble, black market. Uh, Decaverne shows up at Schwartz's house and Decaverne's on to Schwartz. He seems to know that Schwartz is likely the person who uh, shot Caberni and uh, Schwartz is for he's starting to sweat it. He's starting to just sweat the idea that he's going to get caught for this thing. Uh, Go ahead. I just want to say to all of you who've murdered an Aryanization official, um, don't when you get stressed out about it because you're being sweated by the police. Don't confess to your evil wife who you've betrayed, you know, and had affairs uh, um, and who's really pissed at you. And by the way, she's a nasty piece of work. Bad move. Yeah. 
Schwartz, this is what I'm talking about in these two episodes. Just bad decisions all around. Uh, and, and, and Schwartz just giving Janine this leverage over him. Crazy town. Crazy town. But I guess he needs somebody to talk to. Uh, and I don't know. Should have talked know. to Marie. Shemue uh, uh, would have been okay, right? The um, Just don't confess to the evil wife who is really resentful about your affairs. Just yeah. don't do it. Mistake. 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 Uh, speaking of, of mistakes or not, uh, let's let's quickly do... So in episode 10, Kurt! Kurt is here! Kurt is back! Kurt's back! Oh, he's the one who's getting sent to Kiev. He's going to Kiev. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, Minsk! So- <laughs> Kiev! You know. Uh, I, honestly, I would not be able to identify either of those places on a map. Um, so, so Kurt... Uh, comes back. It's very exciting. He goes. To, he's, he sees Mister Barrio, uh, who and says, "He, you know, oh, where's Lucienne? He's only got a couple of hours, but he's managed to come back, so we can just he can talk to her quickly." And this is uh, this is a, a nice scene in the sense that Barrio says some things and doesn't say some things in an effort to I don't know be a decent human. He doesn't tell Kurt. That he is in fact going to marry his love, Lucienne. He doesn't doesn't hold, doesn't give him that info, but he does take the message from Lucienne and he does give it to her. Right when you hear him get the message, you're thinking very easy for him to just omit this information. He does not need to tell her that this dude is waiting by the boats at the place that they once walked. Like this love of his life that he is now getting to marry because of this guy's absence. Like this guy could just stay gone as far as Barrio is concerned. But he tells Lucienne. Yeah. And it's more than that because she basically asks his permission to go. Yeah. And to meet, um, uh, Kurt, and he says, first he says, it's not up to me, kind of, it's up to you. And then she says, I wouldn't go without your permission. And he says, I think it would be wrong not to go. And that's kind of like, shows faith in her that he has every reason not to show or has, you would forgive him for being skeptical given that he knows that she's not in love with him and is in love with uh, Kurt. And also, um, uh, you know, kind of gives her the chance to tell Kurt her own way, uh, which we kind of never quite learn what happens, because when she does tell him, he's like, no, let's run off to Switzerland together, and she seems to be into that. But then belatedly shows up at her engagement party um, after her lateness raises questions about whether she has, in fact, run off to Switzerland with Kurt. So the denouement of that is never, how that plays out is never really clear, but um, but she does seem to um, vindicate uh, Berrios' uh, confidence that you know, in in her, in a way that is understated, but uh, kind of heartwarming. Yeah, okay, so I've got questions about this scene, though. So we know, because Kurt's very specific about when he's got to leave, noon at the latest, right? She's got to get there between 11 and 12. 
so that they can have this talk, uh, which they do. Um, and she's got to be back for her engagement party, uh, which they've, like, discussed. They're throwing at the school. And uh, she shows up at what's got to be, like, 8 o'clock at night. And so my question is just, like, what happened in those intervening hours? Because Kurt's got to go if he's got to go. He's made that clear. Um, and so did she just wander around for six hours? Um, did they think about going to Switzerland? Uh, like, I, it just, I, I couldn't, I thought the time frame seemed, again, plot devicey in the in that we are now, you know, expected to be you know led to believe that she's not going to show up for this engagement party and then it's like oh there she is at the end but it makes no sense actually that she would be gone for that many hours unless you hypothesize that you know at the end of the scene where she and kurt are on the riverbanks she seems persuaded to run off with him and maybe does and there is a kind of you know abortive attempt to go to Switzerland and then she thinks better of it. Uh, her father, who has no confidence in her, warns Barrio, you know, <laughs> be careful of this one um, and seems to know that something is up. But then she turns up and I, I assume that remains mysterious what happens in the in the intervening hours. Um, but I think you have to assume because of the elapsed time that something did and that she was severely tempted to run off and uh, maybe even tried. Yeah. So then, which brings me to my next thing. Do you think, Ben Wittes, that she should have gone with Kurt to Switzerland? Um, I, so for, I guess my return question is from what point of view is the goal maximizing her happiness is the goal um you know protecting herself what what's what's the what's the objective that she would that you're asking against uh i don't know exactly what the well i just like romantic happy ending well like roll it all together you you know life's messy you don't get to segment it you just look at the choice in front of you and you say do you go or do you not go and i'm just gonna tell you i think it's nuts that she didn't go uh you have taken all of the risks up until this point to sleep with a german soldier have a relationship with a german soldier fall in love with a german soldier get pregnant by a german soldier you go through a process to have an abortion like what and then he's he's saying let's get married i want to raise this kid like you're madly in love uh and you know he's saying i i got a guy i can get us across we can go to this place where there's not a war uh where we can live together and I would have a hundred percent jumped on that. Um, Lucienne is a weird combination of risk averse and uh, risk, risk taking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, she's the kind of woman who uh, has an affair with a German soldier, and then you know, to protect herself, agrees to marry somebody she's, uh, in fact, has no particular love for um, because it's safe. Um, she's vacillates between 
you know, a very kind of conservative set of instincts about what's good for her and what she wants in any particular moment in time. And I think you see that in this scene. Look, I, 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 I guess to me, the question is, do you make it to Switzerland with the deserter? If you do, yeah, maybe that's the right answer. But if you don't, he gets shot and maybe you get shot too. Um, and so I think it's which Lucien shows up, right? And the Lucien who shows up, if you buy my hypothesis, is severely tempted by the, um, uh, uh, by the option and maybe jumps at it and then crawls back later. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to, that's good. That's fair. I'm just going to add one other thing that I can't get over, which is, I don't know how much time has passed now in terms of her pregnancy, but she is wearing the like closest fitting clingy dress and is not showing at all. And at some point, Kurt like puts his hand on her stomach to like, you know, like, you know, the, the way that people do with pregnant women. And it's like, she's got this perfectly flat stomach. I'm just... I just spent the whole time, I spent both of these episodes like aggravated by what I think are, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's not, she's, she's not nauseous constantly anymore, which means she's probably into her second trimester. Yeah, she's four months pregnant. Yeah. And she does not look like she's put on a pound. Um, I have another thing I want to talk about regarding the engagement party scene. Oh Yeah. Which is the song, which is a great scene, and it involves the song that yeah. uh, that um, we hear uh, Berio, who is in the midst of quite a humiliation because yes. he's having an engagement party, and his bride, who is pregnant with Kurt's child, hasn't shown up. And people, at least the father, knows that it's not his child, and maybe others have their suspicions as well. And now she's standing him up. And so he is doing the only thing that a a game uh, 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 French schoolmaster should do in this situation, which is entertaining the crowd of people who were uh, uncomfortably experiencing his humiliation with comic songs, sort of the equivalent in American culture, I suppose, of singing Gilbert and Sullivan or Tom Lehrer songs or uh, maybe Weird Al Yankovic or something. <laughs> um, and uh, and the song that he sings uh, is a fascinating comic tour through the French political environment. He talks about how he's imagining kind of like a, it's like a parade or a march or, and here are the action Francais uh, people. And here are the, you know, extremists by which he means the, the communists. And here are the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the religious, uh, the sort of the, the Catholic aligned, uh, people and the chorus of this song, and he's kind of poking fun at them all. And this is very Berio in that he's this is not Vichy line here, right? Vichy line is there's the national revolution is going on, and we're all you know following the same line here. 
And the chorus of this song is, hey, this is France, right? This is, you know, this is what the French people are, that this divided, this um, amusingly diverse, right? And he he has one line where it's like, and here comes the moderate, which is, of course, the Danielle Larchets of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he gives us this, this sort of tour of the French political spectrum in this comic song um, with this chorus that's like, hey, you know, this country is really fucked up in its diversity uh, and the sort of distance between that within this political system that goes, you know, kind of all the way from fascists to communists uh, to, you know, religious conservatives of, of which is means something very different in the context of France in this time than it does in America today to moderates and sort of, um, you know, and, and sort of bourgeois liberals. Uh, and he's, uh, I, I think the song is the, the show gives a fair bit of like just airtime to the words of the song. And I think you're supposed to be sort of mentally mapping the the lyrics that he's singing onto the people that you're you've been watching for the last season and a half yeah the the but the end of the song it says like the song is sort of i I could be interpreting it wrong but i guess i kind of took it as like a a little bit of an endorsement of pluralism right yes the, the end of the song is like they all want the same thing to be left alone you yeah. know to like do what they do their thing Right. So this is, again, the sort of non, um, the non-Vichy political correctness of this song, which is, again, like he, you know, this is the attractive side of Berio. He gets everybody to dance when it's right. He's he's not interested in clerical power, um, though he's willing to become a Catholic for Lucien's hand in this very kind of tactical way. Um, Paris is worth a mass, that sort of thing. Um, but he um, he has this uh, sort of delightfully irreverent uh, pluralism that he's like, hey, we, you know, we got to live together. And, um, and, you know, that was not the line that Vichy, Vichy is at this time is, it never actually did it, but it was really flirting with becoming, you know, a one-party state. Um, it was, uh, you know, actively suppressing and killing people associated with some of the movements that he's talking about. Um, and he sings a song kind of in public that's just like, hey, chill out, people, you know, like, um, let let people be people. Yep. And also, this was where these are a fine. It's a fine episode for Barryat, and I mean fine, not in the. Oh yeah, you look fine in the in the sort of excellent. He is at his best. I mean, when he does these songs, and when he does the kind of um, happy warrior irreverence thing, he is delightful. Um, and also, you know, in, it's like he's got he's got he's got his own like oeuvre of resistance that is very compelling. Yeah, he's he is the the show's liberal in the traditional sense of the word. He's the one who is 
um, most Republican in the small R, uh, you know, he's not a Vichy guy. He's kind of a third Republic guy. Uh, the deputy prefect really disapproves of him. He's not into moralism. You know, he's... Um, and he's not interested in the prudish sexual mores of, you know, in which, in of this period, in which Hortense is somehow a respectable figure and Janine Schwartz is a respectable figure, but Lucien is really playing with fire. And he's got a kind of a attractive sense of that as bullshit. Um, and he's also got the courage to live that both in what he says in in private to Lucien and what he is willing to say in public to uh, Janine and to in, in front of officialdom. Yes. And it should be noted uh, that his song was noted, uh, that there was somebody kind of in the back taking notes uh, because these are the kinds of things that in 42 people started to inform about uh, for your sympathies. And also, and to, you know, to put in a modern plug in, uh, you know, for the contemporary relevance of this, these are the sort of things that, you know, in the current climate, uh, Republican politicians are being constantly called on to answer for these expressions that may have been three months ago, like uh, of, you know, recognition of the reality of what happened on January 6th. Now you have to pretend you never said those things, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in Berrio is going to you know, in an increasingly authoritarian political culture, leave just the French side, leave aside that there are Nazis running around, but uh, just on the French side, these are the kind of things that you can do in 42, that by 43, 44, you know, uh, the become very politically suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Is there anything else you wanted to hit on here? We should have a quick conversation about De Caverne's interview with Janine. What'd you, what'd you make of that? Yeah. So th this is a really interesting. So first he interviews Schwartz and Schwartz tries to charm him and give him, I think it's very nice cognac and De Caverne does not drink it and basically tells him he knows or he thinks he did it. And Schwartz is, um, uh, Schwartz says, you know, basically, no, I didn't. And De Caverne looks him in the eye and says, I don't believe you. Um, and then he issues a summons to... Janine Schwartz, uh, whom he leaves sitting next to uh, lower class people in the waiting room for an hour, uh, and then has her come in and does a brief interview with him, her, in which he uh, 
gets her to identify her husband's preferred brands of cigarettes and dangles in front of her the cigarette recovered the banks of the river where the body was dumped. And it is, of course, the uh, same brand of cigarette. And she realizes that she has inadvertently uh, uh, perhaps incriminated her husband to some degree. She then walks out saying, you'll be hearing from me, which is her way of saying, I am from a different class than you and I have access to power. Um, and so on the one hand, it's a complicated set of sequences because on the one hand, I personally, I'm not a big fan of murder as a general matter, but I have really no problem with what Schwartz did to uh, uh, Cabernet. Um, uh, I think, you know, those officials who were basically trying to extort and you know, dispossess people uh, under the rubric of Aryanization were, you know, a part of, you know, sort of the violent dispossession and ultimately murder of, you know, 30% of French Jews. And uh, I think if one of them happens to be extorting you and you fire a few bullets into his chest and dump them in a river, that is not like on my high priority list of crimes to solve. Yep. Um, on the other hand, I I do think De Caverne, first of all, doesn't know any of that um, and is right. just doing his job and in investigating a murder. Secondly, uh, his class suspicions of the Schwartzes and particularly of Janine's behavior and his irritation at their kind of sense of themselves as above above enforcement of the law uh is certainly justified and um and third he's an attractive character generally speaking and Janine is until this she's now losing solidly to Hortense as to who the worst woman in the show is but she's you know, she's pretty up there. Um, she's a horrible person. And so in a confrontation between the two of them, I found myself very much rooting for Dick Haverne, even though I really would like Schwartz to get away with this murder. I think that, you know, I, I don't really think Schwartz needs to answer to, you know, the Vichy French state for knocking off this guy. So I, I found it a very complicated scene and a very, like, a very sort of like morally difficult scene because my instincts go in so many different directions about it. Yeah. And Dick Averne does this to you the whole time, right? Because he, when he's slapping around prostitutes uh, and, you know, abusing people, you're like, Hey, you're the worst. And then he's like immediately befriends them and like works for the cause of justice together. And you're like, actually you're pretty great. And then he's like, you know, really after, um, you know, yeah, he's investigating a, a murder in a way that I think is consistent with being a good cop. Um, and in doing so, the, when he's confronted with Cabernet's uh, lover, who is trying to pay him off, uh, he even mentions in this exchange being old fashioned, uh, but he basically refuses a bribe to give up the name of um, his suspect, which is Schwartz. 
uh, and the bribe is big. It's like 50,000 francs. And, and it specifically, is what, specifically enough to pay for the surgery. To pay for the surgery, that, exactly. That Morhange needs to perhaps survive. That's right. Um, but also in doing it, he calls him a little queer. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a, there's this, he has that, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how I would characterize it, but he is sort of old fashioned in the way that is both, uh, where you both aren't kind of up with the tolerance of people who are different in some of these ways, and but is also in that old fashioned, in that steadfast, reliable, stand up way that is quite important and good. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, but I, I think I like love him as a character. Uh, yeah, I, I do think the segments of French society that were tolerant of, uh, homosexuality in this period were pretty narrow. And I'm not sure that De Caverne is less tolerant than any other character. Uh, sure. Totally. In... <laughs> oh, you just, you are, he just, he is, um, yeah, it is more just in the way that he, he will treat people who are the outside people with the contempt of people he views as outside, you know? Ex- except ironically, the Jews. Except the Jews, You know, that's who true. he brings, right, he's, he's quite forward-leaning with, I mean, with Morhan, she's the only one who steps up for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, and, but I, I, uh, what do you make of him not taking the, the money? I made of it that it is setting up a major crisis for him in the coming episodes. Uh, the, uh, the offerer of the bribe makes clear the money is on the table, yeah, and, the offer stands. And the offer stands, and Morhange is getting sicker and sicker. Yeah. Um, well, to, to, to bring us home here, just I'll say the, the last thing. Uh, the, the other scene that I thought is just, I don't know, was notable, um, is that while Mueller has been torturing Yvonne to tell him his name, and Yvonne turns out not to be his name, uh, he tortures him, he tortures him, and it turns out, like, they just kind of cut to a scene of him and Colwitz standing over Yvonne's dead body, kind of laid out. Um, and this is one of these, it's not sentimental of Mueller exactly, but he's looking at this boy and saying that he got the best of him. Like, that he chose his battlefield and he got Mueller to be obsessed with finding out his name as opposed to figuring out where Marcel was. And Mueller realizes he's been sort of, um, not duped, but but he got sort of outplayed, outmaneuvered uh, by this guy. And he's looking at him with this mix of both admiration as he's dead there, because he never got the name his name out of him, uh, and also this like wistful, but man, I really wish I'd gotten his name out of him. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, this is Miller as you know, obsessive, ob- obsessive, but also with a kind of Nietzschean respect <laughs> for the guy who you know took all of his torture and just proudly died, yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than you know, drew the line. At, I'm not even going to give you my name. And Miller fought him over the name, and the guy just 
died rather than gave him the name. And he has so much respect for that and understands that this kid, this commie rat French bastard, kicked his ass. Yeah. Um, and the guy's like lying dead on, on a mortician table. <laughs> and Miller's table. looking at him like he's and, the son he never had. Right. He's <laughs> yeah. like, really, like, you know, he's got the... He, he, he's got everything Muller aspires to in life. And, you know, that's, uh, well, that is, you know, a fucked up worldview. <laughs> it is. But it's just, it's one of those, uh, yeah, it was a scene I, I have, rem- I was like one of those that uh, every now and then there's a scene that I'm like, when I think about the show, like this is one of the scenes that just kind of pops into my head. Um, but like, I knew that scene was coming in this episode and like remembered it fondly as a just piece of craft. Um, so, okay, guys, long show. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's let Ben take us home. Rebecca Black. It's, uh, uh sorry. Edith <laughs> Piaf. Uh, take us home. Nous, nous Tendrement, on me tous les amants, et puis un jour.